Laudator Jesus Christus. Praise be Jesus Christ. This is Matt Gaspers, Managing Editor of Catholic Family News, and I'm joined as always by my friend and colleague, Dr. Brian McCall, who is the Editor-in-Chief of CFN. Hello, Brian. I hope you're doing well today, and hello to all of you who are joining us live. Uh, we're coming to you on May 12th, uh, Thursday, May 12th, the year of our Lord, 2022, and it looks like we're coming up on the, the fourth Sunday after Easter, so I hope you're all having a blessed Easter season still. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. He is. Welcome. It's good to see everyone. And yeah, it's all, always interesting to me how quickly the five weeks of Easter go by when the six weeks of Lent sometimes seem to take forever. <laughs> yes, very good yes. point. Yes. Well, we have a full show for you today. Our stories this week include, uh, first off, a an interesting papal speech during which Francis decries, as he's done in the past many times, quote, liturgical formalism and closed mindsets. And he's referring, of course, to, quote, those movements that try to go backwards and deny Vatican Council II. It was an address to the, uh, uh, let's see, the Pontifical Liturgical a, Institute. Anthem. Yes. Yeah. And next up, we have uh, the Pope's answers to an informal LGBT dubia, you might say. For, uh, submitted by, of course, uh, James Martin, SJ, as Brian says, sometimes Jesuit. Next, we're going to take a look at some of the pro-abortion vandalism that has occurred across the United States following last week's Supreme Court draft opinion leak. And one of the examples of vandalism actually happened right in my backyard. It's at a parish that I, I go to. Um, so we'll take a look at that. Uh, next up, we have the continued push for virtually unconditional and unlimited support for Ukraine by President Joe Biden and a large majority of the U.S. Congress. They're currently deliberating in the Senate uh, whether or not to pass the bill that's already passed in the House to grant an additional $40 billion of military <laughs> aid on top of the, of the billions we've already given. And all of this, of course, does nothing but escalate tensions with Russia and risks broadening the conflict. We have a, a new open letter that Brian and I uh, have, are among the signatories for, so we'll get into that as well. And then lastly, we'll round, up, round out today's show, uh, coming back to liturgical matters. Archbishop Carla Maria Vigano has published some comments, really a response to an inquiry regarding the changes made to the Holy Week rites uh, during the reign of Pope Pius XII in the early 1950s. And interestingly, um, Francis actually mentions those in his address, so yes. that'll be a good, good way to tie those, the first and last story together. But before we get into all the news, as always, we'll take a brief look at the church's liturgical calendar and spend a few moments pondering the things that are above, as St. Paul says. So today, as I mentioned, we're coming to you on May 12th, and on the traditional Roman calendar, there are several, there are four martyrs commemorated today, uh, three of whom died, were martyred in the year 98 AD, and they are, uh, let's see, Nereus, Nereus and, Achilles, Achilles, and Flavia Dom Domitilla. Domitia, yeah. Yeah, Domitia. 
And then also um, in the year 304 was martyred our other martyr for today, St. Pancras. So I was going to read just a, a little bit from uh, Dom Prosper Guéranger's liturgical year for the first three martyrs. He says, so far in our Paschal season, the choir of martyr virgins has not yet offered to Jesus its crown of roses and lilies. <clears throat> it does so today by presenting to him the noble Flavia Domitia, the fairest flower of Rome that was cut down by the sword of martyrdom in the first age of the Christian faith. It was under the persecution of Domitian uh, that the the same that condemned John the Evangelist to be burned alive in the cauldron of boiling oil, although that was unsuccessful, as we know, uh, that Flavia Domitia was honored with banishment and death for the sake of our Redeemer, whom she had chosen as her spouse. She was of the imperial family, being a niece of Flavius Clemens, who adorned the consular dignity by martyrdom. And then the other two martyrs, uh, Nereus and Achilles, uh, were in Domitia's service. Hearing them one day speaking on the merit of virginity, she there and then bade farewell to all worldly pleasures and aspired to the honor of being the spouse of Christ. She received the veil of consecrated virgins, virgins from the hands of Pope St. Clement I. Quite an honor, the, one of the successors of Peter in the See of Rome. And I don't if Brian has anything he wanted to add, go feel free, Brian. No, their their saints are not quite as well known in the United States, but definitely are in Europe. I actually knew uh, some people in France who named one of their children Domitia. It's, it's a very popular French saint. Saint Pancras, of course, is very popular in England. And I've never I never got mm -hmm. to the origin of how he became so popular, but it's a whole area of London named after the church of Saint Pancras. Um, so he he got adopted there, but really it's true as I think Guaranger is saying this point at Easter to to really celebrate the Virgin Martyrs and and really what's beautiful about their story is how it spreads. There's some other stories um, like those, but where there's one person usually of stature, and then it's not just they they who embrace the faith and virginity or martyrdom, but their their whole family, their servants that they serve as that example, and that's that great uh, example of Flavia Domitia. Yes. So we ask all of these vir uh, virgin martyrs to pray for us and for the entire church, especially for those in the consecrated yes. life. Yes. All right. Well, moving into our first story today, uh, this speech from Pope Francis. Again, it was given uh, to the teachers and students of the Pontifical Liturgical Institute in Rome. They were received by Pope Francis in audience in Consistory Hall on Saturday, May 7th. And here is, we're just gonna give you some excerpts here. He had some interesting things to say, uh, not too surprising in light of where we know he stands on traditional liturgy. So he's basically encouraging them to continue the conciliar uh, liturgical revolution. I think that's how I would sum it up. Mm -hmm. So he says, quote, I am happy to receive you on the occasion of the 60th anniversary of its founding, the founding of this institute. It came about, he says, as a response to the growing need of the people of God to live and participate more intensely in the liturgical life of the church. Uh, a need that found enlightening, he said, enlightening verification, he says, in Vatican Council II with the constitution Sancro Sanctum Concilium. 
Well, maybe Brian would like to comment on, you know, there were very much under Pope St. Pius X and, and especially Pius XII, lots of efforts to encourage, you know, what, what they call active participation in the liturgy, but it didn't involve destroying the Roman rite, you know. Yes. And again, really, the verbal distinction in English should be really actual participation as opposed to active is it's often mistranslated the Latin. And what they were focused on is what Dom Granger was. The original pure liturgical movement wasn't about changing anything in the liturgy. It was about changing us. And the whole yeah. idea was we don't appreciate, we need to understand the treasure we have, meditate on it. So it was focused on reforming ourselves, priests and faithful, not on tinkering with the mass, but then right. the change came to well, we there's everything we're fine. It's this liturgy that's the problem. We have to change it, and that was when the liturgical movement took its dark turn. Yes. So, and that's Francis very much gets to this difference between the what he calls the conciliar spirit of renewal of the liturgical life. He says there are three dimensions that clearly emerge from this spirit. The first, he says, is active and fruitful participation participation in the liturgy. The second is ecclesial communion. And the third is the impetus to the evangelizing mission, which ironically, the church doesn't do a very good job these days of evangelizing or the men in the church, I should say. So in this first section where he's talking about active participation in liturgical life, he says, the key here is to educate people to enter into the spirit of the liturgy and to know how to do this it is necessary to be imbued with this spirit i guess the question is what spirit are you talking about as, as saint john says in his first epistle not every spirit is from god so yes we have to be discerning um well, he makes clear what spirit he means by his right, attack exactly. at the end of this yes right he says um the liturgy cannot be possessed. No, it is not a profession. The liturgy is learned. The liturgy is celebrated in the school of the scriptures of the fathers of tradition of the saints. Again, an irony considering all of those yeah. things are attacked in the new mass. Only in this way, he says, can participation be translated into a greater sense of the church, which makes us live evangelically in every time and in every circumstance. On this point, I would like to underline the danger, the temptation of liturgical formalism, going after forms, formalities, rather than reality, whatever that means, <laughs> right? as we see today, and here's where the crux of the matter, as we see today in those movements that try to go backwards and deny Vatican Council to itself. In this way, the celebration is recitation. It is something without life, without joy. Yeah, and well, I would just say, first of all, th these statements, and he says this all the time, Roche does, deny Vatican Council too. Well, what do they mean by that? I mean, nobody says that we deny it happened, right? I mean, it's, it's not deny Vatican Council too, deny that it was a council. I mean, he tries right. to imply something's not there. Traditionalists say there's a contradiction in some of the things, some of the documents, and some serious contradictions. And so that's not denying that the council exists. It's questioning its righteousness and its its correctness. 
they never actually get it, you know, get it correct. And then secondly, I would say, I don't know what traditional mass he's visited lately, which is probably none, but in all the traditional masses I've ever been to around the world on multiple continents, multiple, you know, I, I've never seen a traditional mass that is just recitation without life or without joy. I mean, it's actually right. the opposite. Everyone I've ever been yes. to, and again, I'll put them across a wide variety of traditional groups, uh, whatever differences there may be, uh, uh, you're always struck by everyone I go to with the life in many senses. First of all, the youth, that there's always mm. young people there and joy of the people there. So, you know, this fantasy traditional mass community where everybody's just catatonic mumbling around, <laughs> I've never found yet. So I'd like to know where he and Cardinal uh, Archbishop Roche see these people. Right. So skipping ahead a little bit in this uh, speech, he says, quote, when liturgical life becomes something of a banner of division. Now, this is hearkening back to, I forget if it's Cardinal Sep Sepie. Uh, Se be, Cardinal Sepe, yes. Yes, who said, you know, warning John Paul II against Archbishop Lefebvre, be careful, Holy Father, they make a banner out of this mass, simply because it is the traditional and authentic Roman rite. It's not mm -hmm. that we're making something out of it that it isn't already. It is the liturgical banner of the Roman church. Yes. So he says, when liturgical life becomes something of a banner of division, this is the odor of the devil, the deceiver in there. It is not possible to worship God and at the same time turn liturgy into a battlefield for issues that are not essential. But that's the whole point is that it, what's the reason why we resist the new rites of Paul the Sixth is that there is something essential involved. It, it touches the faith. Exactly. It is essential. And secondly, who started the liturgical war? Right. Who is right. it that's divisive? Exactly. If, as Archbishop Lefebvre said, I'm just doing what I've always done from my ordination day. You're the ones creating the division. Right. So it's kind of like they're blaming. He wants to blame. It's like gaslighting, basically. Doing. Right. Who's the one that just attacked the traditional mass with the, you know, to trying to divide? I think it was Pope Francis, right? So that's the yes. irony of this statement. Yes, very much so. And there's nothing more divisive than the new mass. I'd actually say there was a period of time where we went to a, an indult mass at a local, at a parish, a regular parish. And what I always struck me is the Novus Ordo parts of the parish were the most divisive. So there was a Spanish group mass and they just went to that. Then there was an Afro-Caribbean mass. They all went to that. Then there was sort of a normal English mass and people that were just Caucasian English went to that. And the, and the traditional mass, when you looked around, was filled with people from all those groups. So ironically, mm -hmm. the the kind of making the mass, quote, relevant to a particularized group has been more divisive. You know, there's children's masses now, and the children have to go to that mass, where the traditional mass brings people together. Again, the, where we go now, the chapel now, uh, I mean, is the most diverse on a, a ethnic um, you know, racial level that, that I, you wouldn't find at other Novus Ordo parishes. They're actually very, very segmented uh, right. where the traditional mass brings people together. So the last part of the speech we're going to cover before we move on uh, involves the reforms, as he calls them, uh, under Pius XII. So this is what Francis says. It is true that every reform creates resistance. I remember when I was a boy, when Pius XII began with the first liturgical reform, the first one, 
which mm -hmm. I don't know if that's entirely accurate or not, but he says you can drink water before communion, fasting for an hour. Now that I know is not correct because even under Pius the Twelfth, three hours. Uh, it was three hours. Yeah. So I don't know where he must be confused. Maybe he has the same problem as Joe Biden or something. I don't know. <laughs> so he says, uh, but then he's, you know, giving this uh, caricature of a quote, but that's against the sanctity of the Eucharist. They rent their garments in despair, disparaging those who objected mm. to changing the traditional fast from midnight on. Then the Vespers Mass. But how come Mass is in the morning, they say. Then the reform of the Easter Triduum, which is what Archbishop Vigano addresses in his comments that we'll look at at the end of the show. Yeah. Uh, what does he say? All these things scandalized closed minds. It also happens today. Indeed, these closed mindsets use liturgical matters to defend their own point of view, using the liturgy. This is the drama we are experiencing in ecclesial groups that are distancing themselves from the church, questioning the council, the authority of the bishops, in order to preserve tradition. Now, that, that's the one thing that we could say we agree with him on. The, the reason why we're doing these, you know, not distancing ourselves from Holy Mother Church, but certainly from wolves in sheep's clothing. And yes, we do question certain portions of the council, not the authority of the bishops when it's exercised in a legitimate manner, but what we do, we do in order to preserve tradition. Now, obviously he doesn't think that we need to go to these lengths, but objectively speaking, we certainly do. I don't know if Brian had anything. Well, and it's interesting. I mean, they, they would say, yeah, it's interesting. He would say, uh, it seems to be saying like, oh, you're obsessed with the council, traditionalists. It's all about the council. But ironically, it's council. Oh, are you there, Matt? I am, yeah. It did Matt, stall for there? a second. Oh, I don't know. Did I? Well, I was just saying, you know, it, it always comes back to the council. And it's interesting because he seems to say all oh, the traditionalists, that's all they care about. Vatican II, Vatican II. What's ironic, it's really them and Francis and the modernists who are obsessed. Everything's about Vatican II. He writes about the liturgy. It's about Vatican II. It's about Vatican II. Everything. They're obsessed with Vatican II. Where, again, traditionalists have their concerns and reservations with parts of it. But it's not like our whole life. We're focused on living the Catholic life. Part of that is you have to recognize what's a problem. But it's like they're the ones obsessed with the council, <laughs> not right. us. Because it's their pacifier, their little baby blanket <laughs> that they just can't let go of. Exactly. Yes. But we will come back to the Pius XII Holy Week a little bit at the end of the show. So maybe we'll just pass over that. But my last comment on the story I'd like to say is if you take his own criteria, and if you were honest, his own criteria is a condemnation of the Paul VI liturgical reform. Because the first aspect of liturgy is the spirit of the liturgy. People know and understand what's going on. Okay, that's an utter failure. There is less understanding and appreciation of the liturgy today. Just take the basic fact of 60 to 70% of Catholics don't even know what the real presence is. So if the if the new mass was increasing the spirit, the spirit of the liturgy, how can it be the opposite? Uh, building uh, ecclesial unity, again, it's destroyed that. Every mass everywhere is different. It's different languages. There's no unity. It is disunity. And then evangelization, the new mass has not brought the vast hordes of separated Protestant brethren 
to come back to the church because we removed every obstacle, as Bugnini said. It, it, it's been a disaster for for conversions to the church, the kind of missionary effort, uh, compared to what the traditional mass did. So kind of on the three criteria he wants to use, if you were to honestly use them as criteria, you'd have to say, wow, this didn't work. Yeah, exactly. So there's one quick related story to this before we move yes. on to our next to the uh, the alphabet soup dubia. Uh, in the Archdiocese of Detroit, Archbishop Alan Vigneron, two days prior to uh, Pope Francis giving that speech on May 7th, so it was on May 5th, interestingly, the traditional feast of Pope St. Pius V, uh, Archbishop Vigneron promulgated some norms for implementing traditionis custodis. We don't have time to cover them in detail, but I did want to read a couple of uh, highlights or lowlights, you might say. So in these norms, first of all, I guess there's a the Institute of Christ the King Parish in Detroit, St. Joseph Shrine, and they're pretty much allowed, I think, to continue as they always have since it's a personal parish. Although interestingly, it, he, he makes clear they can use the ritual in other churches and locations, not just in their church, which is certainly broader than the Vatican's implying they can do. Right. What I found interesting or kind of silly in some ways, so it says <laughs> for parishes currently hosting a pre-existing stable group of the faithful, they can ap apply he's, or make a request to continue having their mass in a regular parish, uh, provided that the following are done and are made in the request. Yeah. So the request must include an explanation of why the mass is necessary. Seriously, <laughs> why the mass is necessary. The days of the week and times for the celebration of the mass. Here's a great one. Evidence that the parish pastoral council or the family pastoral council has been consulted and does not oppose the use of the celebration of the 1962 missile. So now we have to, in Detroit, you have to get permission, democratic permission from the pastoral council in order to. And we're to the ones that question the authority of the bishop, right? Okay. Right. <laughs> no, I read uh, this to be honest. My impression was this was written by some legalistic mind as a CYA memo. Check, right. check, check. When the Vatican comes along, we did everything you said. That, that's how. And I then the very last thing on the norms says, "quote The Society of Pius X." Yeah. They don't even say Saint Pius X. Remains in a canonically irregular situation and is not underlined not an appropriate alternative for the faithful to continue to assist at mass using an older form of the mass. End quote. So they just got to make sure everybody's aware of that. Yep, yep. And the irony of all of this, a month ago on April 14th, the Detroit Catholic, the Archdiocesan newspaper, social media account, posted an article that says, with no new priests this year, not a single priestly ordination for 2022, Archbishop announces year of prayer for priestly vocations. For the first time in generations, <laughs> Archbishop Vigneron says, no men will be ordained for Detroit Archdiocese. Wow. wow. Well, that says it all right there, doesn't it? Yes. All right. So we'll move on to our next story, which is the uh, the James Martin uh, LGBT dubia submitted to Pope Francis. I saw a report about this on uh, Vatican News, the official news service of the Holy See. And the headline says, 
Pope to LGBT Catholics, God is father who does not disown any of his children. So what does this explain here? On May 5th, another thing happened on May 5th, Father James Martin had written to the Pope in Spanish asking him to answer some questions that he is most commonly asked by LGBT Catholics and their families. So that's why I call it basically an informal dubia to the Pope, so to speak. He, uh, Father Martin calls it a mini interview with the Holy Father on his website, Outreach. So here's the first question. Uh, what would you say, these are all directed to Francis, what would you say is the most important thing for LGBT people to know about God? So the most important thing for them to know about God, as if the most important thing for them to know is is different than for any other human person. Right. You know. So here's Francis's answer. God is father and he does not disown any of his children. Well, I had, I have a scripture passage coming to mind right now of our Lord saying, "Depart from me, I never knew you." Mm -hmm. uh, sound familiar? <laughs> So I don't, I'm not sure. Yes, God does not. Uh, he, he wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, but he doesn't force us. He gave us a free will and there will be consequences for how we use that free will. So Francis goes on and quote, the style of God, whatever that means, is closeness, mercy and tenderness. Along this path, you will find God. So that's the answer Francis gives the most important thing for LGBT, LGBT people to know about God. And again, what is LGBT people? There are only people, you know, it's just ridiculous. Uh, the second question, what would you like LGBT people to know about the church? Francis says, I would like for them to read the book of the Acts of the Apostles. There they will find the image of the living church. And lastly, what do you say to an LGBT Catholic who has experienced rejection from the church? This is what Francis says. I would have them recognize it not as, quote, the rejection of the church, but instead of people in the church. The church is a mother and calls together all her children. Take, for example, the parable of those invited to the feast, the just, the sinners, the rich and the poor from Matthew 22, also Luke 14. He says a, quote, selective church, one of, quote, pure blood is not Holy Mother Church, but rather a sect. So, Brian, do you, what, are, what are your thoughts about this yeah. dubia? Yeah, again, he just doesn't understand that fundamental distinction between a church of sinners who are repentant and struggling to overcome their sin and come as you are, be as you like, which is what he wants to imply. God, oh, God wants everybody. The church is full of sinners. Well, it doesn't mean the church is full of active sinners, because if they are actively in mortal sin, they are, as Pope Pius XII said, dead members of the church. So the right. whole distinction between living and dead members is just gone and obliterated with, well, you're just a member, too. Uh, and, and again, it's just clearly contrary to the faith. Exactly. And and one would think that, though, you know, what God wants people to know who are struggling with a particular vice is that his grace is sufficient for them. Yes. Number one. 
that he will never leave them or forsake them, that his grace is always sufficient for us to overcome temptation. He will not allow us to be tempted beyond our capacity with the help of his grace. But also he wants us to know that, you know, the wages of sin is death, as St. Paul wrote in Romans, that there are real consequences for abusing our free will and choosing to live a life of habitual grave sin, which is part and parcel with that lifestyle. He doesn't want people to live that lifestyle because it goes against nature. It goes against his his nature as love. Mm-hmm. It goes against our own mm-hmm. human nature, mm-hmm. and it leads souls to hell ultimately. So, as someone mentioned in the comments, chaos. Francis never speaks of saving souls. Very true. That's a huge problem with his pontificate in general. Oh. Well, and again, the root of it is a Protestant error of of one saved, always saved. Right. If you're saved, it doesn't matter what you do. Yep. Exactly. All right. Well, I think we'll move on to our next story, which is a kind of a survey of this pro-abortion vandalism that's been cropping up across the U.S. following last week's SCOTUS uh, draft opinion leak. Brian's going to tell us more about that. Yes, and we talked about this story last week, the leak of what appears to, and has been confirmed to be a, a an authentic draft opinion. There have been a few leaks since then um, that it is a five justices that Roberts, again, it unconfirmed but leaked to news outlets, tried his own sort of middle ground of upholding the law but without overturning Roe. Nobody bought that. So it appears it's going to be a five-one-three split with five overturning Roe one saying he would agree with the result, but not overturning Roe, and then the three liberals uh, doing their thing in a vitriolic way. But what's interesting is what the reactions that have come about. Um, we've seen violence uh, in in churches, as Matt said, but we've also seen uh, really attempts to uh, intimidate and scare the justices. There have been protests, yes. uh, public protests outside the homes of uh, the justices, Justice Alito and his family have been taken into hiding. And again, this was encouraged actually by Jen Psaki, the press secretary. She said, we're encouraged, her real words were, we're encouraging these protests at the Justice House. Well, I'd like to uh, remind Jen Psaki uh, and uh, others that Section 1507 of Title 18 of the U.S. Code says that it is unlawful to protest that's nothing about violent protest, but protest in any way near, quote, a residence occupied or used by a judge, juror, witness, or court officer with the intent of influencing the discharge of his duty. Anyone that uses a sound truck or similar device or resorts to any other demonstration in or near any such building or residence shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than one year or both. And of course, we've got the January 6th, uh, you know, Stalin court purges going on. Uh, but I don't see any federal marshals out arresting these people who are in clear violation of federal law. Again, it's nothing to do with violent or nonviolent. Saki says, oh, we just encourage them to be vi- nonviolent, but be there. The law is very clear to protest outside personal residence of a judge, juror, or witness so as to influence their decision. That's exactly what these people are trying to do is a crime. Why aren't they being prosecuted? 
But beyond that, it is also a crime uh, to interfere with and obstruct a place of worship. And uh, the St. Thomas More Society actually wrote to uh, this Ruth sent us group before the weekend, putting them on notice that it is uh, to disrupt again in any way or obstruct even peacefully a exercise of First Amendment right of freedom of religion uh, is actionable under as criminal, but also as a civil action. Uh, but that right. didn't seem to stop uh, these people against both uh pro-life organizations, offices, and against churches. So uh, out in Oregon, there was a pro-life office that was Molotov, received Molotov cocktails, blown up. But the FBI responded, they're not considering it a terrorist activity. Uh, (laughs) But then we had churches in Houston. I saw one with uh, people dressed in Halloween costumes, essentially, uh, came in shouting, disrupting uh, their, their, uh, the, the church there, they were had to be removed. There was a church in Houston also that was vandalized, which is also a crime to vandalize. Right. Uh, there's actually a uh, website uh, by Catholic News Agency that has been tracking this uh, violence, particularly against Catholic churches. Again, there's been uh, other actions against yes. uh, other places, but this is just tracking... Uh, specifically against Catholic churches. And if you and if I, you display that article, if you're able to do, display yes. it, you'll see yeah. a photo of a, a parish in, that I regularly attend the traditional mass at that has the spray painted across the doors, my body, my choice. There it is there. Yeah, there it is. Oh, and so that, you've actually then, been to this, this church. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I go there regularly for Sunday traditional Latin mass. And uh, there's another church. Did you see church. this written on the did you see this on the door or not? I haven't yet, but I, okay. I will when I go there on Sunday. Yeah. Well, hopefully they've cleaned it off by then. But Well, that's true. Hopefully so. Yes. yes. Um, but I did. Yeah. I, I had friends from the parish send text me pictures of that. And also um, another church down in, um, I think it was Boulder, Sacred Heart of Mary Parish had similar, it was defaced in a similar manner. I think even more extreme with some, broken glass I, I can't remember all of what happened there but yeah it's it's not good this is happening all over the country all over the country and again nothing nothing is being done uh, about it you see the list the, the discussions there and they're adding to that I think as as more things happen but and then even nothing. in Texas it's going it's beyond just mere vandalism in Texas a tabernacle was stolen. And these yes. people, this Ruth sent us group, they are rabidly anti, like they're demonically anti-Catholic. They're anti-Catholic, talking about, they, yes. they publicly posted on Twitter about wanting to burn the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. That Those were their words. So th- this is not people who are just, you know, upset and want to civilly uh, and peacefully protest. These people are nuts. And yes, they're they, clearly they, being they motivated by the evil one. And again, we can see that in their behavior. This is not just what well, we disagree. We we think the law is this. This is they have no arguments. They have no rational argument. They tried their arguments before the Supreme Court. It appears they're failing. And so they're doing you know, what what little children do and they don't get their way. There's an English expression they like a lot, throwing the toys out of the pram. 
Basically, if I don't get my way, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to break everything. And that that's, you know, what that's the way of liberals. That's what they did in the summer of 2020. That's what they do. There's no rational discussion. It's just if I don't get my way, I'm going to break things. Right. Exactly. So uh, really, we'll just, I guess, continue to uh, look at this story. But it is, again, continuing to unfold. Very little condemnation. As I said, the press secretary of the president of the United States, someone your tax dollars pay, Jen Psaki, uh, encouraged this, said the president encourages this behavior. Uh, so right. that is really just, I mean, that that is shocking. Now, right. Essentially, US- she said, I don't recall her exact words, but basically, you know, peaceful protest is a, you know, a, been a part of American society since the founding of the country. And we would never want to impede people from exercising their First Amendment rights or blah, blah, blah. Basically, We're totally disregarding the, the federal law. The that law. Brian quoted. Right. right, exactly. Well, the USCCB did issue a, a statement on this. After and, eight the, days, yes. <laughs> after, yes, eight days. This is kind of what happens. Everybody, like, what's going on with them? We've seen this before. Oh, I guess we better say something. Now, on the positive side, it says um, that they did call uh, around for Catholics around the country to join us in fasting and praying the rosary on Friday, May 13th, the Memorial of Our Lady of Fatima. Let us offer our prayers and fasting for these intentions. So very good that they referred to Our Lady of Fatima. This is the anniversary of the first apparition over the home oak tree in the Covade area in, in Portugal. Uh, and it's wonderful that they mentioned praying the rosary and uh, fasting. Um, yes. But again, it reads a bit more like a government document, the rest of it. <laughs> it's, it's Again, it's for the integrity of our judicial system and all branches of government maybe seeking the common good again it, it, it it's, uh, it's they very sort of bureaucratic don't condemn, bureaucratic doesn't condemn sacrileges blast it's kind of like the prayers of the faithful at the new mass <laughs> <laughs> that's good yes it is it i mean it should they should say we condemn in no uncertain terms the sacrilegious defacing of churches the blasphemous interruption of the holy sacrifice of the mass i mean where is their righteous indignation um took them eight days to muster this that's that's yes. sad i had uh somebody responded to me when i asked the, the rhetorical question why did it take them eight days to say something someone responded at something like it takes time to craft a, a mildly pro-life document that doesn't really say much of anything <laughs> <laughs> very good uh, um so the the reaction to the scotus leak you know, government-wise, the Senate Democrats under the leadership of Chuck Schumer have been scrambling. They tried to get a something called the um, Women's Health Protection Act, which basically is enshrining the so-called right to abortion in federal law. And it was very narrowly uh, defeated by a vote of 49 in favor to 51 against. And I think it required the vote of, of a uh, Senate Democrat to defeat it. Uh, Senator Manchin. Yeah, it was it was it was a hundred all hundred percent Republicans, all fifty Republicans, and Senator Joe Manchin. Uh, yes. Now they actually needed sixty votes because there was a there was what they were trying to do was filibuster it, and to end the filibuster, you need sixty. So it wasn't oh, okay. actually a close vote, but again, which is a good sign that he Manchin still, even though it wasn't needed, the Republican uh, could have defeated it uh, with only fifty fifty. But again, right. the law would 
pass on 5049 in favor, but you to end debate and bring it to a motion, you had to get 60 votes. Oh, uh, so, okay. But, okay. So, yeah. So it's good that, good that that was defeated then. It was, although some other legislation that Matt's going to move on to, not so good this week. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, although abortion is still very contentious among, uh, Democrats and Republicans, unfortunately, there seems to be virtually unanimous support, not literally, but but there morally seems to be unanimous support. Virtually, yeah. Virtually, yes, for uh, something called the, we spoke about this during our April 28th news roundup, the Ukraine Democracy Defense Lend-Lease Act of, 22, of 2022. And just to refresh our memories, the act is to, quote, provide enhanced authority for the president to enter into agreements with the government of Ukraine to lend or lease defense articles, which basically means military equipment, weapons, ammunition, etc., to that government, to the government of Ukraine, to protect civilian populations in Ukraine from Russian military invasion and for other purposes. So this is this is distinct from the forty mil, forty billion dollar bill that we'll talk about in a moment, but uh, this Ukraine, or excuse me, the uh, Ukraine Democracy Defense Lend Lease Act of twenty twenty two was signed into law. It passed both the House and the Senate with virtually no opposition earlier this week, and President uh, Biden signed it on Monday of this week, May 9th. And when he signed the bill, he said. Uh, I'm signing a bill that provides another important tool in our efforts to support the government of Ukraine and the Ukrainian people in their fight to defend their country and their democracy against Putin's brutal war. And as many people have been pointing out, you know, how much of a de- I'm not sure how much of a democracy it really is when they uh, <laughs> stamp out the opposition party, put people in prison who disagree with the, the current regime doesn't sound very democratic to me. Uh, He goes on to say, uh, see, the bill demonstrates that support for Ukraine is pivotal at this moment. Every day, Ukrainians pay with their lives and they fight along. And the atrocities that the Russians are engaging in are just beyond the pale. And the cost of the fight is not cheap. That's putting it mildly. Uh, But caving to aggression is even more costly. That's why we're staying in this. And the other major uh, legislative news from this week, so the House of Representatives passed a $40 billion military aid package uh, in addition to the billions we've already given them. This is what Politico reports on this, this bill. The House passed a nearly $40 billion package for Ukraine late Tuesday, sending the bill to the Senate as lawmakers heed President Joe Biden's warning that U.S. cash to help the allied country will run out in just over a week. And it's interesting that they say the allied country. Yeah, I guess we are technically allies, but oftentimes that refers to a country that's part of NATO, which obviously Ukraine is not part of NATO. which they're not. Nor nor should they be. So the Politico uh, article goes on quoting a... uh, House Appropriations Chairperson Rosa uh, DeLaro, a a Democrat from Connecticut, the world must see, she said, that we are united in our support of Ukraine. Vladimir Putin and his cronies must be held accountable. 
This bill does that by protecting democracy, limiting Russian aggression, and strengthening our own national security. But no one has really explained how this is a national security threat, how this conflict in Ukraine is a national security threat to the United States. And that's that's a major issue. Absolutely. And in fact, sending more and more weapons there is creating a national security threat uh, to us because the Russians see it. They say that we're in a war by with us by by doing this. So it's actually making the world less safe for us. Right. So this is On this legis. Go ahead. Top of the fact that again, how many billions did you just added up like 70, 70 billion dollars we're spending on Ukraine when right now I'm sure you've heard about this story. There's there's mass shortages in the United States, particularly among baby formula. I don't know if you've heard about that story. I have. Yeah. There is mass shortages of baby formula. So there are American families who can't feed their children. And again, for people jump all over this, there are some children, you know, need that they, they can't just they say, oh, just breastfeed them. Well, there are some that can't that their digestive system there. They're, you know, so right. there are some people who children will starve without this. And we don't have that. And what are they doing instead of helping American families. They're sending all this military aid to Ukraine. And in fact, CBS reported this morning, they're sending cases of baby formula to Ukraine, two places, Ukraine and the Mexican border to distribute to illegal immigrants. Hmm. Now, there's a principle of Catholic charity. Charity begins at the home. You may have heard that expression. What it means is our duties in charity are always to those closest to us. So we have a duty. If we have a a father or a mother who's dying can't say, oh, we're going to ditch you to go to the other side of the world to take care of some random person I don't know. That our right. duties in charity already run it in a hiarchy. And so, you know, and I'm not denying there isn't a, a, you know, a tragedy in Ukraine, but, or even among maybe some illegal immigrants who are you know, at the border, but the duty of the U.S. government primarily should be to relieve the starving U.S. families, the families that can't afford to go to work because of the price of gas right now, and not right. pour billions and not send aid to two other groups, Ukraine and Mexico, illegal immigrants before Americans, and shouldn't be pouring billions of dollars that could buy all the baby formula in the world to just inflame tensions with the Russians. That's at the crux right. of what's really wrong with this. And speaking of those tensions, uh, Newsweek <laughs> published an article this week. The headline caught my attention for obvious reasons. It says, Russia says they will use nuclear weapons on three conditions. The report says, quote, the conditions for a potential nuclear strike by Russia are written in the country's military doctrine. Russia's Deputy Foreign Minister Alexander Grushko told Russia's state-owned news agency, RIA Novosti. Grushko had responded to a question about the likelihood of Russia using nuclear weapons against its enemies by saying that the answer was written, quote, in black and white. Quote, we have a military doctrine. Everything is written there. It does not give any other interpretation except for what is there in black and white, he said. So here are those conditions. Uh, If, let's see here. When Russia's enemies are using nuclear weapons or other types of weapons of mass destruction on Russian territories and or its allies, number one. Number two, if Russia receives reliable data on a launch of ballistic missiles attacking its territory or that of Russian allies. Number three, 
if Russia's critical government or military sites are attacked by the enemy in a way that would undermine nuclear forces response actions, or if the country faces an existential threat through the use of conventional weapons. And something else that they've been emphasizing from the beginning of this conflict is the expansion of NATO. And unfortunately today, uh, the governments of Finland and I believe also Sweden have said that they are planning to uh, apply for NATO membership imminently. And this is what President, I just wanna take us back to the address that that President Putin gave on uh, Russian, you know, Russian national address on February 24th when the conflict started. He said, uh, in December 2021, we made yet another attempt to reach agreement with the United States and its allies on the principles of European security and NATO's non-expansion. Our efforts were in vain, he said. The United States has not changed its position. It does not believe it is necessary to agree with Russia on a matter that is critical for us. He goes back, and this gives us some insight into how he thinks about it. Whether we agree with him or not, it's important to be able to see things from another person's perspective. This is what he said on February 24th. Of course, this situation begs a question. What next? In other words, if, if NATO is going to continue expanding indefinitely, what are we to expect, he said. If history is any guide, he said, we know that in 1940 and early 1941, the Soviet Union went to great lengths to prevent war or at least delay its outbreak. To this end, the USSR sought not to provoke the potential aggressor until the very end by refraining or postponing the most urgent and most obvious preparations it had to make to defend itself from imminent attack. When it finally acted, it was too late. As a result, the country was not prepared to counter the invasion by Nazi Germany, which attacked our motherland on June 22, 1941, without declaring war. Uh, it goes on to say, those who aspire to global dominance have publicly designated Russia as their enemy. This, we hear this pretty much on a daily basis from the President of the United States and other high-ranking officials. They did so with impunity. Uh, but essentially what he's saying is the continued expansion of NATO poses, a, what, he, what he says, an unacceptable threat for Russia. And going down a little further, he says, for the United States and its allies, it is a policy of containing Russia. Uh, with obvious geopolitical dividends, this continued expansion of NATO and this hostile anti-Russia um, position. And he says, for our country, it is a matter of life and death. It is an existential threat, at least in his mind, a matter of our historical future as a nation. This is not an exaggeration. This is a fact. It is not only a very real threat to our own interests, but to the very existence of our state and to its sovereignty. It is the red line, which we have spoken about on numerous occasions. And he said, they have crossed it. So that's a very ominous warning from a man. If we are tr to believe that he really is insane and maniacal and wants to kill us all why are we antagonizing them? right you know, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense exactly exactly so to that well, end go ahead i no, was going to mention the the uh the open letter that i mentioned in our introduction is essentially 
uh, it's a formal statement opposing these reckless and ridiculous uh, unnecessary provocations of Putin and Russia and escalating the tensions between Ukraine and Russia and potentially the tensions with the rest of the world. Uh, so it's called Not In Our Name, and it's available on our website, catholicfamilynews.com. Maybe Brian can share the screen and show our, our viewers what the, the article looks like, but it, I'll just read a couple of excerpts from it. Uh, the letter says, your strategy, it's addressed to President Biden, is edging the world closer and closer to a nuclear war with Russia and to another world war. We hereby declare that your escalation of this conflict as the President of the United States has not been done in our name. In other words, you, you are not speaking on our behalf. Even if you happen to be our president, we absolutely oppose these reckless uh, policies of yours. Yes. And again, you can read it. We'd recommend reading it on our uh, website, Catholic Family News. Yes. Uh, so for our, our final story, we will move on um, to another item that was posted yesterday on our website, and that is an intervention by Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano, uh, on the question of the 1955 changes, the changes under Pope Pius XII that, as Matt mentioned, uh, have been, um, uh, were alluded to even in Pope Francis's address uh, that we talked about earlier. Now, this is a huge topic. And in fact, I've been thinking we may try to schedule a special show just on this topic. I'm thinking maybe a couple of experts we could have to, to discuss it. So we can't really do the whole topic justice. Um, but what Archbishop Vigano does is he responds to a, a question submitted to him by uh, an anonymously you know, not identified uh, priest, who, but a, a priest who's identified as a traditional priest who says the traditional mass. And... Mm -hmm. um, Archbishop Vigano, I think, responds in a very uh, reasonable and prudent way. Uh, he really follows, in many ways, the um, approach of Archbishop Lefebvre, which he says he understands and um, he, in fact, uh, endorses in the intervention, that we have to distinguish, and this is the distinction that Pope Francis doesn't even uh, see, between change which touch the faith and are favoring heresy or dangerous to the faith and changes which may just be imprudent, um, not, not maybe the, the best or awkward. And uh, although it's perfectly fine to have discussions about those kinds of changes, so that maybe doesn't seem to be the best thing, uh, it is not really legitimate to stand on principle and say, well, I'm going to refuse these just because I don't like them or uh, that you really have to find, as Archbishop Lefebvre did, backed by the Roman theologians who uh, did the Arivati intervention, that there were dangers to the faith. There was favoring heresy, the new mass. And whatever your opinion on the changes of Pope Pius XII, uh, Archbishop Lefebvre and Archbishop Vigano conclude they, they don't rise to that level. And that's important. And, um, but what Archbishop Vigo does note, what's different from the time of Archbishop Lefebvre when he just answered this question in the 1980s, when some of his priests wanted to just go back and use the pre-Pius XII rites, he said, well, look, we can't get into 
making decisions that are not our ours. When it comes to the new mass, it's a matter of principle. When it comes to these, juridically, Pope Pius XII did implement these. We might not think some of them or all of them were, were, were prudent, but we can't just substitute our judgment for his when it's not a danger to the faith. And so he said, we must stick to the, the, the missile as it was in 1962. And it's for the church later to decide after this crisis you know, what to do about the organic development of the liturgy. Uh, and right. uh, what he does note that's different about that is that the former Ecclesia Dei Commission and the Vatican has granted permission for uh, some for the use of the pre Pius XII rites, which changes the situation juridically. They're no longer uh, there is an option, and in, in fact, this is consistent. Even Pope Pius XII and John the Twenty Third allowed the 1950-55 pre fifty five rites to. Continue is actually a picture of John the Twenty Third performing the Good Friday rites in the pre Pius the Twelfth form as Pope. Uh, mm-hmm. So the fact that the Church is saying you can do these, he says, I think you know is perfectly fine. You know, if you want to, you're not obligated, but but you can. Now, as I said, these are complex questions. My own view, I'll just summarize briefly, is I think some of these cha- these some of these changes are very consistent with organic development of the liturgy. The one that Pope Francis points to is a good example. Uh, the time changes. Throughout the Middle Ages, the times began to get pushed earlier and earlier to make them more accessible so people could go to them. Right? So a mass at six o'clock at night in the Middle Ages, if you had to walk two hours to the church, two hours back, it, many people are not going to be able to go. Or at the vigil starting at 10 o'clock, it, it now Pius XII realized in modern times when people can jump in cars, it's much easier that it makes more sense to put the, the ceremonies back at their their uh, later times in, in the day. Again, that you might say there were certain advantages to being the morning fine, but that's a, a, a natural organic development, not touching the liturgy. And to take dispute with that is, is really, I think, problematic. Now, And obviously it has things- nothing to do with the dogmas of the faith. No, not at all. It's a practical decision. This will actually make these ceremonies more accessible. Holy Thursday if it were nine o'clock in the morning, some people have to still work on Holy Thursday, where if it's right. 6 p.m. in the evening, they could actually go. So, again, we always have to go through and, and talk about these. Now, again, some of the changes are, again, very consistent with some of the liturgical movement. But as Archbishop uh, Archbishop uh, Vigano mentions, some of the changes do seem to be trial balloons, to use his phrase, for the coming liturgical revolution. Um, there are things that breathe the air. Of the, liter- of the Novus Ordo, but are, are not quite that. Again, he's very clear about it. They're not. And that's why at the time, notwithstanding what Francis said, most people accepted this. There was no outcry. There were not people, pretty much people said, okay, we're, you know, we'll change it. There was no mass movements against it like there was against the new mass. Uh, most people just accepted it because it wasn't obviously that way and he would he's saying in retrospect we can see ah there's a little move saying the paternoster out loud for out for example on good friday uh a lot a little introduction of vocious popolum and of some prayers uh, and again none of that is against the faith there's nothing against the faith saying the our father out loud on one day a year but what he says in retrospect is we can see that there was this dark change to liturgical rev, rev, um, liturgical movement i mentioned that th- that some of the influence was there beginning. Now, he's very careful. He's not saying Pope Pius XII was wrong. or He admits, he says, I don't think Pope Pius XII was part of this bad movement, 
But there's some of those people who would later become front and center did have a bit of a hand in it. It's perfectly, I think, reasonable right. historically to say that. And that's not condemning Twelfth. You're condemning Pius the Twelfth. You're saying that you know no, and it's not condemning part and parcel everything he did. It's just saying there are maybe some legitimate questions and any normal healthy time of the church. That's what organic development would mean. Some changes were made. The church, okay, those work. These don't. And that's how additions usually uh, and and some minor changes do occur uh, to to ceremonies. That would make sense. The problem is it all got shortstopped. It just got cut off by the new mass. And they just threw out the Pius XII Holy Week and substituted the more radical Novus Ordo one. And so that natural kind of living with it and the church pruning it, that probably would have happened. Uh, it never, never occurred. So again, it's a very hotly debated subject. And part of the problem is talking about a banner. The state of a contest, or at least the nine that left the Society of St. Pius X, kind of made a banner of the pre-Pius XII Holy Week. And that's what Archbishop Lefebvre was reacting against, because they made it a kind of point of principle. We have to use this because it's compromised. And he said, no, we have to be consistent with our own principles. And, and that's why he said we can't do that uh, without Rome's permission for something that is not against the faith. So, again, I think there's a lot more we could talk about what this, I alluded to just a few. But there are extensive changes to the Triduum. Um, that we can we could talk about, and like I said, maybe we'll have a special report where we'll have some guests to do that. Yes, I think that would be an excellent idea to unpack that. I'd be interested myself. It's not something that I've studied in depth, so I'd be very interested in that. Uh, before we wrap up today's show, I just have been noticing in the comments, you know, a little bit of uh, debate going on about uh, Russia and the responsibility, and you know, U.S. responsibility for what's going on. And I just want to clarify. So that people understand where I stand, and I think Brian would agree, we are certainly not fans of Vladimir Putin at Catholic Family News. He's no. former KGB. I mean, essentially, probably still is. Uh, I think he puts on an yes. act sometimes. I don't think that he's truly been converted to the faith. Only God knows for sure. Uh, and it is a fact, obviously, that Russia did invade sovereign territory of Ukraine, which was, you know, according to just war theory, obviously not, uh, not justified. But what we're saying, and the, the point of this open letter, which I highly encourage everyone to read in full, I'll just read the last two paragraphs. It says, at this dangerous moment in history, the U.S. must exert its power to become a force for just peace, urging Russia and Ukraine to come to the negotiation table in order to agree on compromises that would enable and ensure peace in the region. And I would also note, this conflict has been going on since early 2014. It didn't just crop up in February of 2022. There's a long history here. If you want to read about it, I encourage you to read an article by one of the signatories, Patrick Delaney, which is available at LifeSite News. It's called Monumental Provocation. How U.S. and international policymakers deliberately baited Putin to war. It's an extensive historical analysis of how this conflict came to be uh, and quotes some very highly regarded sources and, and commentators. So definitely take a look at that as well. I'll include a link in the description to this video so you can find it easily. But ultimately, the point of this of of our open letter, the last paragraph says, the US should not engage in a policy of intensification of conflict with Russia that could lead to the deaths of millions of innocent people. 
there are grave consequences of cumulative provocations. So that's the point of this. Yes. Yes. And ultimately, all we can do is, particularly tomorrow, pray to Our Lady of Fatima that she will convert Russia, hopefully including Vladimir Putin, and then we will see the period of peace. But as Matt said, the U.S. is just putting flames on the fire, you know, gasoline on the fire, not interceding for uh, conversion of Russia. So, yes, great. Well, with that, that brings us to the end of our program, and we should just do what I just said and pray Uh, to Our Lady of Fatima, whose great anniversary of her apparitions is tomorrow. Yes. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Eternal Father, offer the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, only instruments of his holy passion. Thou may put division in the camp of thy enemies, for as thy beloved Son has said, a kingdom divided against itself shall fall. Uh, Our Lady of Fatima. Pray for us. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Well, thank you for spending your last hour with us, those live and those who watch it. Uh, We hope we've given you some insights into some of these big stories of the week. Uh, Please help us by subscribing to our YouTube and Rumble channels, your podcast channel that you're hearing this on. Like the video or podcast and forward it. Share it with your contacts and friends. Uh, You can help us then in our apostolate. And uh, please also consider subscribing to Catholic Family News, monthly paid content newspaper that comes electronically and in print. And thank you for all your support. We look forward to sharing another hour with you next week. Yes. God bless you.